The Principality of Monaco, a country spanning less than one square mile on the glamorous French Riviera, known for its billionaire residence, legendary casino, and one of the biggest races in Formula One. One man stands at the helm of this small nation, His Serene Highness Prince Albert II. Taking the throne after the 2005 death of his father, Prince Renier, it was his mother, Hollywood icon Grace Kelly, who brought the region modern worldwide fame. It's her personality and her generosity that uh, charmed people and, and made them want to come and, and visit and, and engage with Monaco. The former Olympic bobsledder invites us to the Royal Palace, where we discuss everything from his love of sport to the pressures of ruling, to Monaco's environmental efforts, and even President Trump. Your thoughts on President Trump's decision? Well, of course, it's a terrible shame. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So you competed in the bobsledded five consecutive Olympic Games, starting mm -hmm. with the 1988 uh, Calgary Games through 2002 Salt Lake City Games. You're also obviously a passionate member of the IOC. Mm -hmm. um, explain why um, one of your most prized Olympic possessions is your grandfather's Olympic ring uh, due to diamond skulls, I believe. Uh, this was not the Diamond Skulls uh, ring that, 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 that was kept uh, by other members of the family, but it was his ring from, from, from the 1920 games in, in Antwerp. And uh, my mother had it, and she, and she gave it to me for, I think it was also my 21st birthday. And so I, I keep that uh, uh, very, very safely uh, put away. I've, I've worn it a couple times just for... Uh, just to be able to say that I did wear it, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but I think that's that's also one of the inspirations for and my my determination to try to become an Olympic athlete. And I could have my stories mixed here, but isn't the significance of that ring um, that he was not allowed into this world-renowned Diamond Skulls uh, rowing event, and uh, because he was a bricklayer, and they said he had an unfair advantage and then he ends up at the Olympics beating the guy who won the Diamond Skulls? Yes, of course. Uh, but that, that, that's not why he got that ring. Right, but, but, right. But the fact that he was an Olympian and the fact that he did compete successfully and he was a three-time gold medalist, uh, but that he did beat uh, in the single Skulls finals, uh, the, the rower who, who, who had won in Henley, I think that was, that was sweet revenge. But also the fact that uh, that his son, my uncle Jack, uh, was a double diamond skull winner at Henley in 1947 and 49, I think that was uh, that was an even uh, even even sweeter revenge. What led you to competing in the bobsled at the Olympics in the first place? I, I, I had seen. Uh, I was able to. See the sport of bobsledding at different occasions, and, and one one was at the Olympics in in Lake Placid in 1980. So I, I kind of said to myself, I, maybe I'd like to try that someday. And, and that opportunity came when when I was on a skiing holiday in St. Moritz in Switzerland, and uh, they were offering, as they still do, uh, guest rides for for uh, people who wanted to tried out with an experienced driver, of course. So I did a run that year, and, and I thought it was like a ride, and a, uh, like a roller coaster ride with a, with a little more cold air on your face. Uh, and, but I, I didn't think of 
pursuing it much in a competitive way until the following year where I, I went back to St. Moritz and, and uh, did another guest ride. And then I, I met a, a, a Swiss coach who said, well, I, if you'd like to try, uh, like to try your hand at driving, one of these things, we have a upside driving school in a few months and, and, uh, and we'd love to have you. And then, you know, when you start getting involved and things start going pretty well, then you think about putting a team together and think about uh, doing different competitions. And then before I knew it, uh, two years later, I was uh, qualified for the Olympics. And so, uh, but I never thought that I'd uh, be able to, to uh, take up a new sport and, and be able to go that far with it. You ultimately carried the Olympic flag in three uh, mm -hmm. Olympics, um, but describe the emotion of that very first time carrying the flag. It, it was very emotional, uh, not only because you, you realize that you're at the, big, the biggest sport and cultural event of the planet, uh, and you're walking into a, a stadium full of people uh, that are cheering you on, but you realize that you're, that you're representing your country, and, uh, and uh, that a lot of people at, at home are watching you. How exciting was living with all the other Olympians when you were in uh, competition? I mean, it seemed to be from reading the reports that everybody thought, oh, you know, he's royalty, he's not gonna be living with all the other athletes. And you're like, what do you mean? I'm right here with the guys. I knew the importance that an Olympic village had, and, and I wanted to be a part of that experience, and there was there was no way I, I wasn't gonna uh, be right there in the middle, firstly to, to, to stay with the team, but, but also to, to get that experience of meeting athletes and officials from all over the world and to uh, engage with them and to, you know, to get the full, get the full effect and, of, of an Olympic experience. And I think it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry for, for, for those athletes who uh, for practical reasons, did not stay in Olympic Village mm -hmm. and, and did not have that experience. So this had to be an exciting time of your life. I mean, you're an Olympian, you're royalty, you're single, you're like dating models. Um, not like, only. Uh, what? No, I did only date models. Right. Um, <laughs> but like going back to that time, like what did you think of all the attention that was paid to your personal life back then? You know, I, I didn't think uh, didn't think too much about it. It didn't really impede me that 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 much. I, I tried, you know, to go about my own way and what I thought was uh, was right. It, it's only when uh, media becomes too obtrusive and 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 too wants uh, wants to dwell too deep into your personal life that then you get to, uh, you put up a. a Protection and, and uh, will find the find your find your space to be able to protect yourself and, and those that are important to you uh, around you and it's it's still the same today uh, but uh, I never whatever I did I didn't try to do it for for any any sort of publicity and right. I didn't, certainly didn't 
I would have chosen a different sport if I, if I wanted to be publicized, bob, bobsledding. But back then, it was a very small-time sport, right. and it only really existed at, uh, at an event like, like the Olympic Games. And it probably wouldn't, wouldn't survive if it wasn't on the Olympic program. Over the years mm -hmm. growing up, you played soccer, javelin throwing, handball, judo, swimming, tennis, skiing, rowing, sailing, squash, bobsled. Um, how much of a desire growing and, up? And modern pentathlon. And modern pentathlon. Which is, as you know, a combination of five different sports, uh, fencing, uh, swimming, riding, shooting, and running. And so I did that toward the end of my bobsled career, and, and I just did a few fun charity competitions, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible sport. I'd, I'd always wanted to try it, uh, and it's, uh, it's very demanding. You solicit different, uh, of course, different uh, muscles and different, different uh, uh, mindsets of uh, different sports, and, and, and it's, uh, but it's very interesting to try to combine all of these, uh, all, all of these activities. How much of a desire growing up did you have to be a pro athlete? I never really thought about being a pro athlete, but but I wanted to see as as far as I can go, and, and I probably could have dedicated myself more to to a sport like bobsledding a, a little earlier on, and I probably would have would have had better results. But um, I wanted to try a lot of different things, and and I was curious about a whole array of different sports. And of course, a lot of them I was able to try. And, and was able to have a certain competitive level. If not a head of state, what do you think you would have been interested in doing? Either would have loved to have worked for an international organization, uh, like the UN, or some, something multilateral, and, or, a, or I could have been interested in becoming a teacher also. Really? I love working with kids, yeah. What were the pressures that you felt, if any, growing up as royalty, the pressures basically of, of any one, even if you're at a younger age, you're you're thrown into public situations. And I did my first official unveiling of a plaque when I was six years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, when do you really a, become conscious of it, though? You, I, I guess it was gradually and around that age, probably four or five, or uh, that you. You kind of notice that you're in a bit of a different family and a bit of a different, uh, uh, with people having different expectations of you and people making sort of a fuss over you. It's not always easy, and not always easy to, to come to terms with. It, it wasn't? No. What, it, what got it, to you then? It, it still isn't in, in many ways. But like, what, what about it? I consider myself uh, uh, a private person uh, most of the time, and so it's hard to perform in a very public situation and have to do, of course, public, public appearances and speeches, and de depending on what what it is and and what and what the situation is, and you, of course you, you get to meet great people, but uh, sometimes it, it does get, uh, and even at a younger age, you, you kind of try to figure your way around, but uh, at a later stage in life, then it becomes a little. It's just a little tedious, but there are things that you have to do, and, and you have to sort of grin and bear it and, and push forward. Looking back, uh, how strange, if at all, 
is it to basically have had your career chosen for you without having a say in it? You know, you kind of learn pretty early on to say, well, I, I don't really have a choice. I, I mean, I could just walk away and, and have my own life, but that would be, first of all, uh, uh, not respecting what, what my father and mother did for this country mm -hmm. uh, and trying to keep that moral obligation uh, that there is to lead this nation and, and to be the head of state. Your mother, uh, Princess Grace, she was obviously, pr prior to Monaco, a hugely accomplished, successful Hollywood actress. Her and Prince Renier fall in love um, and she moves to Monaco and I believe it had a huge impact on tourism. What would you say um, she did over the years that most positively impacted Monaco? I think it's basically her personality that, uh, that was able to not only be a great ambassador for, for Monaco and, and, and showcase Monaco in a very positive light, but she was able to attract different kinds of, of prominent people here. Of course, figures of the performing arts, but, but also different business leaders. And it's her personality and her generosity of, of, of heart and, and spirit that, that, uh, that uh, charmed people and, and made them want to, want, want to come and, and visit and, and engage with Monica. She obviously passed away uh, tragically in a car accident at uh, still a very young age. Um, you were having breakfast mm -hmm. at, at the time and your father comes in. Um, how well do you still recall uh, what he said? Well, basically, he, he said that we that we had to we had to go down to the hospital because uh, uh, Mom and, and Stephanie had an accident, and so we uh, I didn't think twice about it. Went went down went down with him and and uh, Carolyn as well. And of course, it was a very shocking moment and, and one of uh, you know, you, you're not quite sure what to think or what to. Uh, of course, you're, you're you think that things are going to improve and that uh, it's uh, it's not as bad an accident as as was as you thought it was. And and so, you know, those 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 few hours there were were very very tense and very emotional. How long did it take you to realize what the eventual outcome? was going to be? It wasn't until uh, later that evening that it became apparent uh, that the outcome w w was not going to be, was, w was not going to be a good one. Your sister Stephanie was in the car at mm -hmm. the time as well and obviously recovered. What did that process entail for her of getting better? Well, it, it took a very long time for her to, to to recover from this, and it was a very painful, painful recollection for her. And uh, it took a number of years for her to be totally, uh, to have come to terms with that. You know, just the, the pain of being in that, in that car with, with our mother and not being able to, 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 uh, to, to, to 
to pull her out or to, to have a different outcome. I mean, she was injured, of course, also. Uh, but I think it, it, it's a traumatic experience, and it would be for anybody. How did it affect you, and how long did it take to start to feel normal again? You know, it always takes uh, takes a while, uh, and you you recover thanks to your other family members and and to your friends and to people that are dear to you to and provide comfort and. And but it, but it also takes a few years to, to really fully come to terms with that. What about your dad? Well, it's pretty, uh, pretty obvious that uh, he was deeply affected and the, he, he wasn't quite the same man as he was uh, before the accident. Your father, Prince Renier, uh, longest serving monarch of modern time, when it was coming closer to the time, uh, to take over, what are you thinking? While you're, you're thinking, uh, am I am I really ready for this? And and you know what 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 will happen when you know you don't have in my case uh, father that I have to report to. And so it's it's kind of daunting that 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 uh, you, you don't have that that. Uh, that safety valve of of having someone above you that, that that a can that can help you or can give you different advice. Your dad uh, once said about you, at least as I, I read it, your only issue is you're too nice. Uh, your reaction? Well, you know, it, it was it's 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 a question of character. Uh, of course, my my personality is that of I think openness and 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 trying to. Engage with people and and to uh, you know to have have a positive attitude. Uh, and some people, of course, see did perceive that as as being as being a weakness. I I personally think it's a it's more of, a, of an advantage. But uh, why would people perceive it as a weakness? Well, you know, if you're too nice, then you, you, you're you're perceived as, as saying yes to everything, and then you get. Uh, uh, you slowly get pushed over, but but that's far from being the case. Well, right. There's a difference between being nice and saying yeah, yes to some, everything. Some some people make that connection. Did that bother you? Yeah, of course it did. Because uh, constantly you have to think that you have to prove yourself, and that I knew that that was going to happen. What do you think you learned from your dad? Taught me also to to trust very very few people who, outside of your of your staff or your of your close circle and, and to, uh, you know, constantly, constantly question yourself and, and think that is this the right way to go and is this the right, the right attitude and, and to always try to get a second opinion. I spoke to a couple of people close to you who said uh, he was really hard on you. Um, in what ways? I think he was demanding and, and uh, wanted me to do the right thing. and he felt the responsibility to, to bring me along to, to where I'd be ready to, to take over. But um, I think he was, I, I can't say that he was hard, but he was demanding and it's probably, probably what I needed at, at a certain period of time. How do you think your relationship uh, with him impacted you as a father? Well, you know, I think it's difficult to say, of course, I'm a very proud father and, I, and 
they're still very, very young kids. We're going to try to bring them up in the, the most normal way. My, my parents did that to my sisters and myself, although they explained what, what, what was happening and where we were and, and, and what was asked of us. But, but um, we had a, as n normal a, a family life as possible, I, I think, in, in terms of spending time together in, in private situations. And, and they, they made sure that we, that we had, a, uh, of course, a, a good education and, and, and cared for all our needs. But they, they really wanted us to, to you know, to have uh, time together and to go on trips together. And it was easier to do in those days uh, to try to escape the media. It's, it's, it's a little harder now. Because everybody has a camera. Because everybody has a cell phone and <laughs> everybody can take pictures or films of, of us and, or of anybody in, in, in a private situation and then put it on, the, put it on social media. So it's, that's, that part's going to be difficult with, uh, with our children. But um, I'm going to try to, we're going to, of course, try to uh, educate them in the best way possible. But uh, we want to pr protect them also and to uh, have some, some great private moments together. After you met uh, Princess Charlene, what made you realize that relationship was different and special? I think that relationship was, was different and special because, of course, we had that, the love for, for sport uh, that uh, brought us together. And, but it's also her, her character and her, her joie de vivre, but her, her enthusiasm for, okay. yeah, her enthusiasm and, for, and her love for life. I, I think her, her, her character comes out in, in the things that, 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 she, that she's doing and her uh, great affection for children and I think it speaks uh, highly of her character and of her care for others. Obviously in a very, a very accomplished swimmer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in her own right. What, what about sport do you guys share in terms of passion? Well, of course, swimming, and I, and I, was, I was a modest swimmer, uh, competitive swimmer when I, was, when I was younger, so, and I was still, and that's how we met, because I was, and I still am, uh, president of the Monaco Swimming Association. Do you guys ever raced? Uh, not really. I, I think we'd all know what the outcome of that would, <laughs> would be, so. Uh, be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, but, no, it's... That, that fact, that of course, the, the sport that brought us together, but, but, but not only, her love of nature as well, and, and, and uh, the fact that she really uh, cares about, uh, about other people, but, 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 but especially about the younger generations, I think that is uh, extremely uh, appealing, and, and, and uh, I want to help her in, in, that, uh, in that way also. How have kids changed your life? Well, you know, obviously, when, when you're when you're a parent, uh, you, you have a heightened sense of responsibility uh, toward these toward these children and uh, responsibility for their well-being and for and for for their safety, but also, of course, for for their education. And, and you want to. You know, go about the best way possible uh, to ensure that they that they get all of these things at, at the right time. 
You know, the twins obviously live here w with you at the palace. Uh, how do you create, you and the princess, a sense of normalcy for them as they grow up? It comes in different ways, in different forms. You, you, well, first of all, you have to try to spend as much time as you can with them and, and to play with them and to make them feel comfortable around their surroundings. Of course, it's, it's hard to do in, in, in this palace where, it's, uh, where there are a lot of people walking around. We're very, very lucky to have another property that's, uh, that's up the mountain and not, not too far from Monaco, but uh, uh, far away enough to be uh, in, a, in, in a wonderful natural surrounding with a farm, with, uh, with uh, di different uh, areas where, where they can play and where they can learn about nature and where they can see animals and, and, uh, and have a great, uh, a great environment in which to grow up in. Monaco is certainly synonymous with Formula One's yeah. Monaco Grand Prix. Describe what Monaco is like that week. Uh, Monaco changes its uh, face pretty radically. It's our biggest event of the year, uh, not only in terms of attendance, uh, but in terms of different uh, different side events that uh, that happen here. So it goes way beyond just just motorsport, and uh, so you have the F1 and supporting events uh, and of other formulas that, that that race also on the same weekend. But there are a lot of different charity and social events, and it's uh, of course the opportunity for for different. Uh, uh, different sponsors and different uh, partners of F1 to, to do some corporate enter entertainment. So it's, um, and you know, and w when you talk to the drivers, as I have over the years, it's, it's their, uh, it's the Grand Prix that they not only want to race in, uh, but they, that they want to win because it's, uh, it has been historically uh, one of the hardest races on the, on the, on the circuit, and uh, one that is the most challenging, even if it's the shortest right. course. Uh, but in, in U.S. terms, it'd probably be the same significance of the NFL's Super Bowl or, yeah. you know, the Daytona 500 for NASCAR. That is the exactly. premier event, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think the first one you attended was in 1965. Um, first one that I remember being almost trackside uh, in an apartment overlooking the track. But yeah, that it, it it was uh, 1965. What, so. if anything, outside of that, do you recall? My, I just, you know, different images, different uh, uh, that, that that incredible back then for uh, for, for a seven-year-old uh, the. The sense of speed that those cars gave, the the noise, the the smell, the uh, uh, just the overall uh, incredible magnitude of it all for 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 a young kid, it was uh, it was unforgettable. I think there's, and I know you're going to end up correcting me when I say this, but somewhere in the neighborhood of forty thousand people uh, that live here, around a third of which are millionaires and billionaires. Um, for some. Um, Monaco might be synonymous with banking secrecy and uh, any of the negative issues associated with that. Um, but I know when you became ruler that that was really important to you to address. Um, how do you go about 
combating that? Uh, I think we've uh, uh, signed uh, scores of, of different agreements uh, in f fiscal tra transparency and, mm -hmm. and exchange of information with, uh, with over 30 countries now. And then other measures uh, uh, in, in our banking system that make it uh, that make it in such a way now that it's uh, that there is v virtually no more banking secrecy issues, and uh, we've we've adhered to uh, uh, and we've been uh, sanctioned in in a positive way right. by uh, different organizations by different oversight organizations to, uh, that uh, have taken us off the. Uh, black and gray lists, and so I think uh, we're on a very good way, and, and we've and that was that was the idea that I was able to express in my in my opening speech on on my inauguration. Well, so, and it's amazing to consider you know how far it's come too, because I think when you first took over, there were something like ten times the bank accounts as um, residents, so it had to be an enormous. Um, issue to work through. Um, like, how do you go about figuring that out? Well, you. Uh, fortunately, there, there was a very good team, not only in our uh, in our finance and uh, uh, the equivalent of our uh, treasury department and our finance department, and uh, different uh, heads of. Of different organizations, our our banking, uh, uh, the, the head of the Monaco Bank Association. We were able to talk to them uh, at, at different meetings, and they they uh, they all agreed to to uh, follow those to, to follow those guidelines and and to follow that process. Hard conversations at times because I'd imagine that hurts some of their business. You know, you you, you really had to convince them to to look look at the issue in a different way and then they didn't want to be the first ones to, to go down that road. I said uh, look at the other countries not only in Europe but but elsewhere that are changing their ways and, and we, we cannot escape this uh, this process and this and this way of doing things in a more open and more transparent way. What did you write in your letter to President Trump shortly after he was elected? I was hoping that uh, that the U.S. would still uh, be a significant uh, uh, actor in not only the fight against climate change, but would help uh, still lead the effort in in keeping our oceans uh, uh, as as healthy as possible. And that was uh, because I know that, and I know this firsthand because I was able to attend uh, different different conferences uh, where Secretary Kerry was present and these were very significant uh, conferences for uh, a better understanding and, and better uh, governance of our oceans and some some great measures came out of these meetings and so I was hoping uh, that uh, that the new administration would would uh, uh, still carry on with that effort did he respond he has not responded yet. Your thoughts on the U.S.'s decision, President Trump's, to try to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Well, of course, it's a terrible shame. What was very encouraging is the, the reaction by uh, governors of certain states, by the mayors of certain large cities in the U.S., and by different business leaders, that they would uh, stick to what they had committed to 
uh, and that they were determined to uh, cut their carbon emissions by a, a significant amount. And uh, and so I think that there's that there's still hope, and that uh, and that uh, the U.S. has shown uh, over the years that it 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 has rebounded from different situations in a in in a very positive way. And I hope that this will this will also be the case. I would imagine your family, much like uh, the public, is grateful for everything you're doing uh, in Monaco to help combat global warming and climate change. Uh, why commit to a 50% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality uh, by 2050? Well, because although they, they do seem like ambitious goals and ambitious targets, we, we thought it, it was possible for a country of our size. But uh, we have to set those kind of goals to, to help make a difference and, and and have a significant impact. But I think everyone uh, in business here and, and the different government entities and different uh, different organizations here have uh, saluted this effort and, and, and are behind it. The Paris Agreement, oh, how it's been talked about so much recently. Um, but, you know, researchers have since come out and said, even with the agreement that was reached at the summit, they've since learned that temperature over the century will still rise somewhere between 2.6 to 3.1 degrees Celsius, which I believe is the tipping point still of irreversible consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so what else do you think uh, needs to be done to help combat this? Well, let's at least, uh, if those figures are true, and, and I have no reason to believe that, 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 that it's not a, a a reasonable or adequate estimate. Uh, let's try to do everything we can to mitigate that. Uh, it's not, uh, we're just not gonna sit back and wait for those temperatures to rise and, and go about a, a business as usual scenario. Uh, we all know, and, and some economists have been able to prove this, that uh, if we stay in the same ways and means of production of, of energy or, and in other areas, uh, it will cost us twice as more to go about our lives uh, producing energy that, that way than it is to, to revert to renewables. So knowing that, let's move to renewables in a pretty significant way. Really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.